on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week... Weston takes on an overlooked opera and encourages the team to branch out in a newish segment called Under Further Review. And in the two-minute drill, Renee Fleming volunteers to get an MRI for the sake of science and find out what happens to a stage director and filmmaker when they get that OBS bump. It sounds contagious. I guess it kind of is contagious, Oliver. Um. I- Certain bumps can be contagious. You have to be watch out for ones on the lip and other oh. places. There's a cream. There's a cream you can get. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. It's a family uh, show, um, everybody. Matt, Matt no, Cummings, no. Uh, not a user of this cream, I, I understand. Not if I can help it. Yeah. How about you, Weston? Have you used this cream? Oh, I'm slathered in the cream right now, Dave. I'm <laughs> oh. very slippery. Okay. Uh, Ashley That's Hargrave. enough. <laughs> let's, let's not talk about the cream, Ashley. Let's talk about Sarah Fuller. <laughs> yes! Let's talk about Sarah Fuller. It is so awesome. Uh, it might have been out of Corona necessity, but she <gasps> I love it. made. Thank you. That's my new. That's my new word for lots of things. You can all have it. Tm tm tm. Um, she made history as the first female to play in a Power Five college football game. Uh, she was just also named the SEC Special Teams Player of the Week, and she's also the goalie on Vanderbilt's SEC Championship Soccer Team, which she <laughs> also won last week. Um, you guys know about this story, right? About Sarah Fuller? Now yeah. I do. <laughs> okay, yeah. Basically, uh, Vanderbilt's football team, which I can say this is an SEC person, doesn't always have the greatest, uh, you know, record. Uh, they completely depleted their lineup of kickers based on coronavirus testing. Nobody on their roster could play. So the coach oh, calls like, Sarah Fuller, who is like the champion goalie on this team. And she was like, I think I can kick. Now she has an opportunity to do so. So she went on <laughs> at the beginning of the second half for kickoff. She literally had one kick, but that was enough to put her in the history books. Hmm. I love that. That's great. It's a really fantastic story. I uh, am a Lions fan at heart. Watch the Bears as well. Uh, get this, though. Uh, we are sort of contractually obligated now that we're on TDO to be Dallas fans. There is no team over 500 in the NFC East. There is no team over 400 in the NFC East, which kind of makes me laugh. So all those (laughs) haters in Philadelphia, because we love Opera Philadelphia, of course, all those haters in Dallas, because we love TDO, I just just giggle every time I look at the (laughs) standings. It just means that people are losing, but they can't, not everybody can lose. Like somebody has to win, right? They're just not winning at the right time. I mean, you would think. I think that is the sport rule, yes. (laughs) <laughs> Someone must Both win. Both teams lost. Usually. <laughs> do we have wait, wait, do we have an opera equivalent to a team, you know, in 40% or in 50%? I guess a, we do. A, an opera company <laughs> or that only an opera wins company like or an less artist than half yeah. the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to name names right now, Oliver? We don't want to say that on the air because they'll find us. Okay. That'll let's be for talk, the after show. Yeah. Let's talk some opera. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera 
Box score. Under further review is a relatively new segment for us. Matt Cummings, this is your brainchild. What is it all about? So this is loosely inspired by a podcast that I listen to all the time called You're Wrong About, which is about <laughs> looking at conventional wisdom of things and like the general conception that everyone seems to have about things and why you're probably wrong about it. And the sports metaphor, of course, is that if there's a close call, the refs go to the TV replay and the play is under further review. Weston Williams is going to take an opera and put it under further review. Weston, what do you got for us? Well, uh, first, I'd like everyone to uh, uh, I'll see if I can back out in the edit here so we can see all of our names at the same time. There's your hint right there. Huh? What do all of these weird puns have in common? They're all trees. That's right. We're doing the 1911 not classic, Tremanisha by Scott Joplin. Uh, and I believe this is, I, I do have to give credit to Matt, not just for uh, creating the segment, but for uh, suggesting this uh, as a possibility for me to do. And I would, I jumped on it because at first glance, this kind of seems like an unusual uh, pick for this segment because it's, uh, it technically won Joplin a Pulitzer. But the thing is, it did not win him a Pulitzer in 1911. <laughs> that is for sure. So the story of how Tremanisha came to be is kind of like a bittersweet portrait of the life of its composer, Scott Joplin. If you don't know Tremanisha, uh, I, I don't blame you. Uh, it's not done at, often at all. But you definitely know something by Scott Joplin. He was the king of ragtime. Uh, ragtime, of course, being a sort of a, a, a an early fusion of uh, African slave uh, music styles and European uh, music. Uh, so you'd have like uh, um, something where you have the syncopations of that sort of uh, of style combined with European harmony uh, and uh, and forms and things like that. And Joplin created the classic rag where he really refined it and elevated it into something that was really unique and really, really special. He came from a musical family, but his father was, of course, a, form, a former slave. His mother was freeborn, but they had to work all the time to make ends meet, so neither his, of his parents had any chance in hell of becoming uh, of musicians in any capacity, really, other than informally. A very um, common story in Reconstruction. Absolutely. But, uh, and you bring up Reconstruction, Matt, uh, uh, jo uh, Joplin was born around 1868. We don't know the exact year, but we think it was around 1868, which is right smack dab in the middle of Reconstruction, which lasted from 1863 to 1877. For those of you who don't know, Reconstruction, uh, Reconstruction was the era following the Civil War where Northern troops were still in the South in order to enforce some level of equality for these recently freed slaves. Um, and during this period, there were um, there were a dramatic gains for the African American community. There was a lot more representation in government. People were uh, actually electing Black Congress people for the first time. It was a very optimistic time in a lot of ways uh, for that community. And then, of course, they ended it. And the Jim Crow era started essentially immediately. If uh, you are one of our overseas listeners, there's no reason you would know what Reconstruction is or even Thanksgiving from last week. I barely <laughs> knew what Reconstruction was. My fifth grader probably knows more from his social studies class about it than I do. Because they don't really teach it very much in school. And it's one of the great tragedies of the American experience. I mean, really... If you break down the historical causes of discrimination, police shootings, uh, it 
oftentimes you can you can really pinpoint the moment where it all went wrong after the slaves were freed was when Reconstruction ended. Reconstruction was the last really big effort by the federal government to actually help people lift them out of poverty and that generational cycle, a generational cycle of racism and hatred that uh, really grips us even today. And I All and right. I will say, Weston, if you, get us into yes. the music. I I want to listen to a rag. Oh well, <laughs> we can, we can listen to a little rag in the background. I think uh, I I, I want to say that Joplin had a lot of trouble getting started, as all musicians do, but especially as a black man, he really only had the options of uh, of performing in kind in either in churches or in kind of seedy areas. He actually performs in a lot of brothels, believe it or not. He even back to the cream. Uh, yeah, back to the cream. Um, <laughs> And he even at one point actually was in a minstrel show, um, which is not something he talked about much later on for obvious reasons. But I think it's actually an important thing because it, it, in that era, the only way a black person could get up in front of a white audience or an, any audience that wasn't really informal, that was actually you know paying ticket prices, was to be side characters in minstrel shows, to be the butt of the joke. Uh, so you see a lot of black entertainers from this era who actually got their start in minstrelry and then obviously rejected that for obvious reasons later on in their careers. Uh, and, and Joplin was no different. But uh, eventually what broke him out of having to work in these unsavory conditions was his first real hit, The Maple Leaf Rag. And uh, if you're probably listening to it in the background right now, it is uh, one of the most classic ragtime pieces. I guarantee you've heard it before. If not, you've also you've heard like The Entertainer and things like that. Um, but this is just a quintessential ragtime piece. And you can see how it brings a lot of syncopation forward that uh, was very unusual in the late 19th century. And because of the success of the Maple Leaf Rag, he was able to live off of royalties and to some extent subsidize his life and his art going forward. Uh, while he was never really financially stable, he did eventually become confident enough to pursue a more ambitious project in the form of his first opera, The Greatest Honor, which came out in 1903. Um, it had um, a, a cast of about 32 people. It was performed a few times. It was about the meeting of uh, uh, Booker T. Washington, the famous uh, uh, African-American activist in that time period, and Teddy Roosevelt at the White House, which drew a lot of vitriol from racists in the South and elsewhere, uh, I should mention. Uh, and it's uh, but and it sounds like a really interesting opera. Unfortunately, during the run, at some point, some uh, a manager involved with the company stole the box office receipts and left. And in order to pay off, uh, pay off the debt to the theater they were staying at, um, they uh, Joplin had to basically give up all of his stuff. And uh, historians speculate that one of the things that was included was the score, the only score, because it wasn't published yet, of a guest of honor, and now it's completely lost. And the theft happened in Springfield, is that right? I, I believe in Springfield, yes. I think there's well, what a, some What a class act. Here we are taping in Chicago. We're all Chicago-based, <laughs> and like just downstate from here is where this happened. We can just blame Springfield for all of our so problems. guest of honor, <laughs> the search is still on. Tremonisha, here we are. This brings us to Tremonisha. After losing guest of honor... 
Um, there was a lot of incentive for Joplin to really go back to rags, you know, do his uh, quartets and and use and just do the same stuff over and over again to really uh, churn out an income. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to create something special. Uh, so he he started, you know, working on this opera, which really, really. He, and when I say he he worked on it very feverishly, literally because he had syphilis and <laughs> lots of fevers associated with that. Again, and with he the creeps. really, he really, really suffered. <laughs> I really suffered with these cream references. I can just say that. I blame uh, Oliver. He started it. He really oh, suffered. We're going to be canceled. <laughs> he really wanted to. Uh, he really wanted this to be something special. The problem is, is that as a uh, a black person in America in this time period, it was very hard to get funding. Uh, we do know there was one. Uh, there was one full. What seemed to be one full performance of it on the ready to go that collapsed. There was uh, there was a brief run at a at a festival at one point that people think was probably abridged. There was one very sad performance where um, where he was trying to raise some money and he performed on an out of tune piano. It was just a real mess, and he died with ever really at seeing it become the success it deserved. Um, even though it's really got a lot that's really really fascinating about it. Uh, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the story of the opera. So it takes place in the late 19th century on a former plantation around where uh, Joplin grew up in sort of the Texarkana area, um, which I believe Ashley hails from as well. Um, I Yeah, it's it's about a hundred. It's first of all, it's Texarkana. Canna, um, <laughs> thank you. Texarkana. No, it's, Texarkana. It, it, yeah, so Texarkana is the town that's right on the border between Texas and Arkansas. And that, that area of the Red River kind of, it's been going through Colorado and through the center of the country, and then it dips into uh, the southeastern corner of Arkansas. It's a really beautiful area that I'm roughly 150, 70 miles from right now. Uh, So this was an area that he knew very well, and he really brought a lot of that local color and local flavor into the story of the opera. So... The community, the African-American community there has basically been abandoned by the former white owners post-slavery. And so they're kind of un- in charge of the plantation in order to create their own food and community. Um, but they are also very, very uneducated. They obviously, slaves weren't allowed to learn how to read or, or write. So they don't know a lot about how to uh, think for themselves. And as such, they're very easily preyed upon by a few charlatans, uh, who the opera calls conjurers, who evoke superstitions to uh, to get scams, to scam people out of money. Uh, uh, Tremanisha is the only person who knows how to read in the vicinity because she was taught by a white woman. Incidentally, Joplin um, had his first really important music lessons with a white woman who also taught him uh, his appreciation for opera, especially German opera. So you'll see some sort of, not necessarily references, but parallels to like Siegfried and things like this. where uh, so she's the only person who can read, and she's really the only person who can really see through these scams on a really fast, instinctive level. Um, so let's just hear a little bit of the beginning with the conjurer Zodzitrick. See if you can spot the subtle naming con- uh, convention. Uh, trying to sell a bag of luck to an unsuspecting uh, Monisha, who is Trimonisha's adopted mother. I want to sell to you this bag of luck. Your enemies it will keep away Over your front 
window you can hang it and good luck will come each day Drive the blues, I'm thinking, and we'll stop Ned from booze drinking. <laughs> no, that bag you're not going to buy, cause I know the price is high. I must tell you plain and bold, it is worth its weight in gold. That was from the 1976 Houston Grand Opera premiere, the fully staged premiere, as far as we know, in 1976, um, with the orchestration by Gunther Schiller, featuring Betty Allen as Monisha, Willard White as Ned. I stand Willard White. He's great. Uh, Bed Harney as uh, Zodzatrick doing a very sort of sporting life reference there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Willard White. I am I am also going to stand Willard White. I just oh, he, he's a gem. Him. He's, he's I, a delight. I recognize the guy that was singing uh, Zodzetric. That's how you pronounce it, I believe. Is that right? I think so. Zodzetric. 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 Yeah. As long as you get that trick in there so you yeah. know what he's about. <laughs> no, he's a, yeah, he's a really famous character actor as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. He, he's he's mostly known as an actor. Obviously, he's not a cl- uh, classically trained opera singer in the same way as the rest of the voices, but he does seem to be an appropriate pick for this role, especially when you consider around the same time, there was a big revival, also featuring Willard White, of Porgy and Bess with the character of Sport and Life. And so there's lots of parallels to make there, which I don't think are necessarily fair or intended, obviously, because Sport and Life came a couple decades later. Um, but obviously there's some vibes going on in the production. I would, um, I would say that like e- even more than Porgy and Bess, what this opera reminds me of historically is like what the, what Carlyle Floyd was trying to do with Susanna, where right. he's taking Appalachian folk music and weaving it into this like very classical atmosphere. Exactly. Scott Stop. Joplin in my mind is doing something very like the Mighty 5 in Russia. You know, digging through these uh these Russian folk tales and folk music to create a, a a sort of an elevated classical presentation of a culture that hadn't really had a chance to be seen on that stage before. Obviously the Russians were doing it with Russia and uh, Scott Joplin was doing it with black people in America in the um post-reconstruction, early 20th century South. And, and it's and at this point, I should also point out that uh, it's very tempting when you're listening to this opera to hear those little elements of popular music and ragtime and call it a ragtime opera. And in fact, in a lot of promotional materials, it was called ragtime opera, but this was actually a term associated with, associated with lower brow entertainment, especially minstrel shows. Um, and it was basically every time you had a ragtime opera, it was white people dressed up in uh, blackface, making fun of, of what they saw as funny quirks of black people, essentially. It's really horrific. Um, but despite but the that... Sh- the sh- show does have ragtime in it. Exactly. That's the thing. Uh, Joplin was the king of ragtime. He couldn't not use it. He couldn't not bring that aspect of uh, uh, African-American music forward. So I, I want to read this little quote he says, um, he-, he said about the opera later on in his life. He says, quote, I am a composer of ragtime music, but I want it thoroughly understood that Tree Manisha is not ragtime. 
In most of the strains, I have used syncopation, uh, excuse me, I have used syncopations peculiar to my race, but the music is not ragtime, and the score complete is grand opera. And wow. that, I think, gives us insight into what Joplin was trying to do. He was trying to create something that was a true expression of what it meant to be a black person in that time, in that place, but giving it this mythic proportion, this very Wagnerian sort of synthesis of, you know, of, of f evocative folk tales to create a culture that could be respected and seen by people as something more than just low crass entertainment plus, plus opera has a long history of incorporating dance forms into it like there absolutely are there are polonaises there are minuets there are gavots like going all the way back that is not new so scott joplin was trying to create something that was completely unique but still presented those elements of syncopation and ragtime and what constituted black music in 1911. Just check out, for example, this uh, popular sort of song and dance feel in uh, the uh, chorus number and dance going around, danced by the Cornhuskers at the beginning of the opera, uh, and with Andy being played by Ken Hicks. <laughs> Gesamtkunstrag. Gesamtkunstrag <laughs> is right, Oliver. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, oh it, I, I love that. It, it very much is a Gesamtkunstrag, uh, and it really does tie in because, as I said before, uh, one of his most important music teacher uh, teachers was a German uh, um, uh, pianist uh, who who really taught him uh, an appreciation of German opera. He was a big fan of Lohengrin as well. Um, we know that for a fact. And uh, really, um, as we're as the opera's going along, you can start to see just a little bit of Siegfried poking through with Tremonisha. I mean, we, you're you see Siegfried everywhere. <laughs> I, I mean, that's true. That's very on brand. Yeah, Siegfried glasses. <laughs> glasses. That's like in oh goodness, what's that movie where he puts on the glasses and he sees Obey, but instead I see Siegfried. Uh, <laughs> that's me. Uh, so. Uh, Basically, what happens now is that we learn Tremonisha's origin story as she does. Her parents were not actually her parents. They found her uh, under a tree, thus Tremonisha. A sacred um, tree. A, a sacred tree, which is evocative of the tree which you pull the sword out of in uh, Die Valkyra. And, it's, it, and just like in Die Valkyra, you know, the fact that she was found under this tree and knows how to read it's very, it, 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 there's like these notung parallels, you know, notung is the sword is usually thought of as being the tool to bringing about the demise of the gods. Similarly, uh, Trimonisha's education is what gives her the tools to complete the plot, uplift everyone, uh, and by extension, 
the entire audience of uh, black people watching the performance in Joplin's eyes. Uh, so uh, this is all a digression. I don't have to talk about Siegfried all day, so I won't. Um, at this point in the opera, the subtly named Parson Alltalk <laughs> comes into town. He briefly preaches to the chorus before moving on. He makes very little impact on the plot. Really, he just is there. He distracts everyone with the little sermon and then uh, is never heard from again. And while that sermon is going on, Trimonisha is kidnapped. He does, it doesn't have much of a connection to what's going on, but obviously the name All Talk really speaks to something a little bit deeper in the meaning going on here. And also his music, in my mind, is the most fascinating piece of music in the opera. Let's go ahead and just take a little listen. This is from a different uh, recording. This is audio only, but um, it's a more accurate ragtime orchestration uh, with a ragtime orchestra. Uh, the uh, the orchestration is done by Darren Stokes. Oh, no, sorry. Darren Stokes is singing. The orchestration is by the Par uh, Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. And, uh, and this will give you a, a it brings forward an aspect of the music that you don't really hear anywhere else in the opera, but I think is very historically significant. Listen, friends, always live like brothers and sisters. We should we should credit that's the new recording or new-ish recording, the Paratime Par, Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. Is that what Paragon it's a Ragtime Orchestra, and that's conducted by Rick Benjamin. Actually, he also yes. arranged a lot of the music. In he this. did, yes. Uh, and that that piece is so fascinating to me because it's such a contrast in styles. You have this sort of the the sort of generally sort of nice little, almost like ecclesiastical feel, like the revival, 19th century church revival. And then it changes into that very uh, distinctively dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. The, the, uh, and and it, it really is sort of creates a different uh, mode of expression that you hadn't really heard uh, at this point in, in in this period of history. Obviously, I think nowadays we tend to associate that kind of sound with uh, spirituals or, or, or singing in terms of tonality and rhythm. But you have to remember, in this time period, that was not really well known yet. Most uh, spirituals and uh, quote-unquote black music that people were familiar with that ended, ended up being recorded and written down were arrangements written by white people uh, or 
by black people many decades later who didn't have any living connection with it. Scott Joplin grew up in the Reconstruction era South. He heard these things firsthand and had no reason to whitewash them. Obviously, he was trying to get things a little in a little more operatic direction um, and changing things that way. But I think that little nugget right there is just so historically significant because there's nothing really like it, certainly not in the opera canon, and very, very little like it outside of opera. And it's just such a cool moment. And just I get chills every time I hear it because I feel like Scott Joplin is speaking uh, speaking almost like a, a across history, a, across history. Yeah, just it showing felt us very something. much like a Lovecraft country moment there. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a great show. I just started watching it. That's a delight. Uh, this is not about Lovecraft country. I must move on. So a tree Manisha has been captured by the conjurers who decide that she should be thrown into a giant wasp nest for foiling their plans. This is a very, uh, a scenario very evocative of like Br'er Rabbit tales and traditional African mythology. Again, that, that, uh, that sort of uh, Mighty Five-esque a combination of, of, of sources to create a new form of higher art for a specific people or culture. Uh, while she's tied up, there's a brief dance break, uh, um, which is really a ballet sequence, um, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, before her friend Remus runs in wearing a devil mask to scare the conjurers away. So let's just watch just a little bit of the frolic of the bears, the ballet from the opera Trimonisha. sort of turn-of-the-century um, late romantic ballet in this opera for you with all of the creatures dressed up and dancing around. I, I just love that little part. Um, and after that happens, she's uh, Trimonisha returns to the plantation, much to the relief of everyone involved, and then there is a big debate about what to do with the conjurers since they've done terrible things to everyone and preyed upon their superstitions. And uh, Trimonisha 
then has a moment where she becomes sort of the center of what Joplin was trying to say with this opera. She says that they deserve compassion to let them go. And as a, and because of this a show of compassion, everyone sort of comes around her and accepts her as a leader who can teach them all and educate them and bring themselves up very much in the Booker T. Washington sense that remember Joplin also wrote an opera about uh, and it was very much uh, of the zeitgeist um, at that point where where she's just really turning towards the audience and almost telling them this is what we need to do in order to overcome this segregation, this hate, the, the systematic oppression. But of course, after uh, around the time Joplin died, the second Ku Klux Klan was getting started. And um, this sort of, you know, conciliatory attitude became a lot less popular. But again, it's a beautiful sort of glimpse into what could have been in the mind of someone who grew up during the optimistic era of Reconstruction. So let's just hear a little clip of that final aria that Carmen Balthrop uh, singing the role of Trimonisha um, said, uh, really bringing it all together, turning it out towards the audience and the chorus accepting her as the leader they need in order to advance um, their culture and their people and find justice for themselves. I love audiences applauding high notes. We should, it's, we it's should do that more. It's very 70s. We should. <laughs> it's very, very Who 70s. Who is that soprano? What is her name? Uh, her name is Carmen Balthrop. I, I hadn't actually heard of her before she I started looking at She teaches at Maryland. But she's, she's, she's great in this. She's just a delight. And then uh, for an opera written by someone who is primarily an instrumental writer right yeah. the vocal music sings so naturally it really does and this is this is one of the things that i just find so exciting about this is because when you listen to joplin's rags i mean they're they're masterful they're they're the quintessential cornerstone of that entire genre but he was capable of so much more and i think it's a little sad that he had so much trouble expressing it in his own time um and and because of that aspects of this opera are lost the original orchestrations missing because he was uh, because after his death he was obscure no one knew who he was and then the revival in the 1970s which brought on this production really got uh, really got him back into limelight but certain parts of history were probably lost forever and this is why i think that when we're talking about um underrepresented groups in opera especially black people um um 
we really want to be conscious of the fact that there is a history there. It's just been buried, often deliberately, uh, and we have to really search to find it and provide new opportunities so that this kind of thing doesn't happen in the future. So let's just like play it on out with just the final fun dance number, um, a real slow drag to take us home. Uh, at the beginning of this that Trimonisha ended up winning him a Pulitzer, but it didn't win him a Pulitzer mm-hmm. in 1911. So what exactly is the story there? I think the story really is just that, you know, Scott Joplin was famous in his day, died in obscurity, his works were lost, and he came back, uh, he was rediscovered in the 70s, along with the critical reappraisal of a lot of early music about and written by black performers. Because remember, the 1960s were a big era for civil rights, and the 1970s was when there started to be a more uh, more movement, especially in the black community, around be- not being shy about your culture that you've created. Uh, that's where you, I mean, even in like fashion, uh, and uh, and you see like the uh, the proliferation of afros for the first time, which were considered so un acceptable even a decade prior. And this sort of research and look in, looking into uh, previous, uh, you know, uh, pe- people who w- were part of that culture um, really resulted in a Joplin renaissance. That in combination with the film The Sting, who I'm sure everyone's grandfather watched and loved, but I have not <laughs> seen because it's too long. <laughs> So he did get the Pulitzer 65 years later. He did get the Pulitzer 65 years later. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. That's what I was getting at. That's the point I wanted to make. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Weston Williams. Tremanisha under further review. We're going to get into the two-minute drill in just one second. Ashley, the Ravens and the Steelers postponed for the third time. For the third time. Also... The Northwestern game against Minnesota has been postponed because, I don't know, half the Golden Gophers have COVID. We just need to call football a draw until there's a vaccine. 
Put down the pig Matt skin. Matt Cummings clearly... Stay home. Matt Cummings clearly doesn't care, right? Because, you know, when the Steelers are 10-0, you're just waiting for the next body to fall on the pile, right? It's true. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> what, Although, what that's I a little too real right Ravens now, The steelers rivalry is one of the biggest rivalries in the NFL. Um, I mean, you'd think it would be Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. They're in different conferences, of course, so they don't play each other that often. Ravens-Steelers, when they play on Tuesday night, which is a strange night for a football game, Man, it's going to be nasty. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Lyric Opera of Chicago and the American Guild of Musical Artists, or ACMA, have reached a new labor agreement that extends through the 2020-21 season. In a nutshell, healthcare for unionized artists has been saved. The announcement arrives on the heels of a similar agreement with the Chicago Federation of Musicians. Opera America has appealed to the Biden-Harris transition team for increased appropriations for all federal arts and cultural programs, as well as increased pandemic relief to businesses and nonprofits. Opera America is also urging the transition team to rescind an executive order that disrupts diversity initiatives and is backing a signed letter of opposition sent to Congress with regards to the Paycheck Protection Program and the challenges it poses to small businesses. Thanks, Opera. Sound Health Initiative. A study with the National Institutes of Health is researching how music can improve brain function and explores ways to use it as therapy for neurological disorders. As part of the study, Renee Fleming, the people's diva, underwent a two-hour MRI, singing inside the machine to help doctors pinpoint how music can activate the brain and trigger memory. Look out for her next memoir, The Inner Brain. Since the start of the pandemic, most companies have moved productions online. On-site opera, however, has moved in the opposite direction, developing an opera-by-mail production. Patrons are mailed in an envelope containing a QR code and URL to an audio recording. The envelope then unfolds to reveal program notes, artist biographies, and supporting material to enhance the drama. Send on-site opera a self-addressed stamped envelope to find out more. No CODs. Weston doesn't know what a COD is. Ah! Friend of the show, James Dara, is in demand for an increasingly prevalent digital stage. The stage director and filmmaker will direct projects for Boston Lyric Opera, music videos for LA Opera, produce the film adaptation of Soldier's Songs for Opera Philadelphia, and will direct the world premiere of The Lord of Cries at the Santa Fe Opera. You see what the opera box score bump can do for your career? Noting that the Latinx and Vietnamese communities are among the largest in San Jose, Opera San Jose has announced that it will offer its virtual production of Jake Heggie's Three Decembers with both Spanish and Vietnamese subtitles. In a statement, Opera San Jose said, quote, the company is dedicated to producing accessible, affordable, world-class performance for longtime opera lovers and newcomers alike, end quote. In other words, bienvenidos and chao mong. Last week, countertenor John Holiday advanced from the knockout round on NBC's The Voice. Holiday earned an enthusiastic reception from the audience as well as the coaches, sending the genre-bending multi-octave-spanning artists to this week's live playoffs. Friend of the show, Janai Brugger, is part of the starry cast of The Voices of San Francisco Opera, premiering online this Friday, December 4th. The 90-minute program also features performances by Michael Fabiano, Sandra Rabinovsky, Artur Ruczynski, and Nicola Luizotti. 
plus artists from San Francisco Opera's Fall Season and Unsung Kim and the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. Find out more at sfopera.com. On the disabled list, Sonia Yoncheva is indisposed with a non-COVID illness, causing her Met Stars live in concert performance to be postponed a second time. The new date has been announced for Saturday, February 27th, 2021. Hey, that's right, after the Super Bowl. Exit stage right, Sarah Brian Miller, whose passion for classical music took her from performing on the opera stage to reviewing world-class orchestras, died of cancer at the age of 68. Greek soprano Elsa Castella has died. She gained performance notoriety as a star of the Bonn Opera and went on to become a sought-after singing teacher in Vienna. Italian lyric coloratura soprano Eugenia Ratti has died at the age of 87. Ratti originated the role of Sister Constance in Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites at La Scala. She can be heard on 14 albums, including her portrayal of Derlina in an all-star Don Giovanni, conducted by Erich Leinsdorf, with Birgit Nilsson, Leontine Price, and Cesare Sieppi. Polish-American conductor Gabriel Chimura has passed away at the age of 74. Among his accolades was his Jan Kippura Prize for Best Operatic Conducting and the Gloria Artis Gold Medal for his service to Polish culture. His recording of Monteverdi's Orfeo received the Grand Prix du Disque. And on this day, November 30th, in 1663, it was the birth of castrato Andrea Adami da Bolsena. In 1719, Handel became the orchestra master of the Royal Academy. In 1764, it was the birth of the German bass who created the role of Zarastro in the Magic Flute, that bass's name Franz Xaver Gerl. In 1796, Karl Lowe was born in Halle. In 1866, it was the birth of the German tenor and opera manager Andreas Dippel. In 1885, Massenet's opera Le Cid premiered in Paris. In 1899 is the birth of the Czech composer Hans Krusha. In 1903, the original Brooklyn Academy music burned to the ground. In 1967, Thea Musgrave's opera The Decision premiered in London. And in 2001, it was the first performance of Tobias Picker's opera Teresa Can in Dallas. And that's your two-minute drill. So that was from the 1959 RCA recording of Don Giovanni, Cesare Siepi singing Don Giovanni, and Eugenia Ratti singing a graceful with... An, Very uh, graceful. Yeah, with a no longer um, allowed portamento, downward portamento. <laughs> I thought you were I thought you were going to play her singing Ratti, Ratti, Bel Mazet. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I've, I used to say this all the time on my other my other podcast, that the downward portamento is one of the best effects that singers have, and so few people do it. And I wish that we could reinstate the downward portamento in music that is appropriate, that can appropriately inhabit it. Um, Mozart necessarily is not the right, is not the right composer for it, but I love a downward portamento, especially when it's just, it just feels like a little slide. It's like, shoo. You know? <laughs> 
Ashley, just how old is Elsa Costello? Oh, my darling George Cedarquist, that is one of the great mysteries left <laughs> to time. <laughs> Elsa was very famous about hiding her age. You cannot find birth dates, death dates, ages, nothing. Uh, and, you know, a lot of women had to do that to protect their careers. Elsa was no fool. She mm. kept that age hidden. We'll never know. A real life Macropolis case. Matt, oh. just how old is John Holiday? <laughs> I don't I don't know exactly how old he is, but I can tell you that his star has been born. Uh, I mean, every opera singer on this planet has been asked by someone that they know when they're gonna audition for American Idol back in the day, and now the voice. Uh, and there, I, I was wondering what people who are not opera people and don't already know about John Holiday were mm. thinking about this. And there's a big, there's a long write up in the LA Times about how he turned to this after basically all of his other work, singing dried up due to the pandemic and was like, well, why not just give it a shot? And what a shot he took, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe he's going to be the one to get John Legend and Chrissy Teigen to be opera influencers. But can you imagine the kind of reach that we would have? Between uh. that and me deeply following her Instagram and secretly commenting in like a polite, not creepy way, I think we can get this to happen. <laughs> just how old is James Dara? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Can I just ask you to stop that already with that rhetorical device? It's over. So <laughs> He's ready to ask him how old he is. Make me laugh. <laughs> I, was, I was setting up a joke. It's yeah. all right. Um, <laughs> I'll, do it, I'll do it for James, then I'll stop. Just okay. how old is James Dara? I don't know. You're going to leave that in, though. You've got to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I've not met James Dare. I know we've 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 talked on email. He's no, he's been our interview guest. He's the friend of the show. I, w- I know, but I wasn't on the show. I wasn't okay. on the show. That, that okay. yeah, he missed that one. Um, but uh, you know, first of all, I, I'm pretty sure he went to UCLA, right? I think he's from Los Angeles. He's also associated with Opera Omaha. Clearly, the man is like in just the perfect place to be combining his great film work with great opera work, you know, with a whole roster of projects coming up, which I cannot wait to see because I might actually learn something from the man about how to synthesize these art forms of opera and film. Similarly, he's, he's definitely, hold on, he's definitely the director of the moment because we talked about mm-hmm. him when we interviewed him about he made that great video with Joyce Donato of Lasha Kiopianga and did one of those sexy shirtless videos of Jakob Josef Orlinski uh, <laughs> like in a nightclub like sweating or something like that I don't know but I mean he he's a filmmaker <laughs> it was a simpler time o- Oliver yeah. just remembers the sweat <laughs> <It's all. laughs> um, he's a filmmaker and this is what we're all going we're all look at look at this it is, it is, terrible it is. film we're putting out right now it is, well, it is the way we're heading the other thing is don't ke- the other person you want to keep your eye on right now is kevin newbury he's also a friend of the show as well brilliant director filmmaker in his own right i've seen some of his recent film work and just i, I tell you that guy is going to continue to make mm. great work not unlike on-site opera actually again on-site opera has a way of never putting a foot wrong they have really expanded and redefined hang on i'm gonna get out the sharpie here (laughs) they have really expanded and redefined what site-specific immersive opera can be and they have found a way to do that without audiences in your very own living room with this um uh opera by mail ashley sort of a site in specific if you will it Ah. it is it is (laughs) ashley oliver sacks you know my question. 
<laughs> I here's the thing: we have not mentioned Oliver Sacks absolutely once in this uh, podcast or this video cast, as it were. But let me bring it on back. Let me circle it on back for y'all that weren't part of our very witty banter before we began filming tonight. <laughs> Um, someone asked me if I wanted to talk about Renee Fleming, and I very reluctantly said, I'll do it. Um, and the reason I said that is because I am, you know, I am not always the biggest Renee stan, but I love that she's a Hmm. part of this work. I love- Ashley, she got an MRI. She got, yes, she got an MRI. I've also gotten an MRI. (laughs) Where's my $20 million grant? Uh, (laughs) That's exactly the question I wanted to ask. There it is. There. So, yeah, no, to nutshell this, uh, basically the, um, there's been- you know, there's been a lot of work on the brain-body music connection and how it can spur development. It can restore connections. Uh, there have been a number of things that have been going on for the last, like, uh, 10, 12 years. A really great book by Oliver Sacks, Musicophilia, The Brain and mm. Music. Uh, it came out about a decade or so ago. It's a fascinating study. What I really appreciate is how the NIH is really putting their money where their mouth is in terms of neurology and the study of restoring brain connections and working with patients with Alzheimer's, with traumatic brain injuries, helping to figure out what it is about music and this unspoken language that can help restore these connections. So thank you to Renee for being a part of this. Definitely check out Oliver Sacks' book, Musicophilia, if any of this interests you. Uh, I definitely have had family members with with brain injuries and issues before and we were encouraged to play music that would help jog those memories also just a fun brain hack if you're ever in a place where you feel like you have a full mental brain fog and you can't function and you need to like snap out of it and start making decisions box cello sweet and g put that on Mm. two and a half minutes you'll be sharp as a tack you know the one matt cummings wait a second is opera america actually doing something i mean i would i don't i don't know if i would put them on the same level as like NIH and this kind of research they're not they're not necessarily putting money towards it but they are uh they're trying to help advocate for the singers and other workers in the arts who have really been given the cold shoulder throughout this pandemic uh and it was brought up at the time and we've continued to bring it up as best we can about how the relief efforts have been really inadequate for those who make their lives livelihoods through freelancing mm-hmm. and i I mean, I don't know if they're going to be like the most receptive ears given everything else that's going on in the world, but you know, something is better than nothing. And at least someone is speaking up. Oliver, wrap up the drill for us. Well, first of all, shout out to Ashley for being able to take that complete non sequitur and turn it into a talking point that you threw at her uh, (laughs) about Oliver Sacks um, and revealing to the audience our sort of inside baseball, so to speak. Uh, but also shout out for uh, her pronunciation of Thank welcome you. in Vietnamese. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know. But, uh, you know, g- good job, Opera San Jose, for, um, you know, reaching out to your community. Uh, I wanted to just mention this San Francisco Opera event, which is like many events that we have seen gala type of fundraising, whatever, exclusive for San Francisco Opera audiences. Uh, but they've assembled a pretty amazing cast. They have Michael Fabiano and Sandra Radvanovsky and Arto Ruchinsky, who I'm trying to get on the show. Mm. Uh, but they are going to be kind of telephoning in their performance from Madrid, from Teatro Real. I guess they're probably in a show together right now. So I don't know. Or they were that. supposed to be at some point. Oh, uh, I don't know how that relates to San Francisco Opera, but San Francisco Opera is selling it. And <laughs> a special shout out to uh, Janai Brugger, our friend. 
uh, who now has as her one line that she's the glowing voice of rage in the Tulsa episode of <laughs> HBO's Lovecraft Country. And when you think about it, I mean, so if you don't know, if you watch Lovecraft Country, uh, there's like this requiem that happens in this really disturbing episode. It's like it's a penultimate episode of the series. And there's this like aria that's playing and you don't know who it is, but we know because we know it's it's Jan, um, Janai. But uh, she probably reached more audience members, more more ears doing that whatever 90 seconds of singing than any of us will ever do in our lives because it was on hbo you yeah. know to be yeah. fair uh glowing yes. voice of rage was my previous tagline but i will allow jedi to use it <laughs> <laughs> all right let's wrap this show up good call bad call on opera box score good call bad call oliver camacho what do you got for us so this may sound like I'm uh, self-advertising or self-flagellating. What do we say? Self-aggrandizing? But um, there's actually... <laughs> yes. Those are all different things. There are... <laughs> <laughs> all wildly different. Um, one of the organizations that I'm strongly affiliated with, uh, Amherst Early Music, has been doing uh, online classes in lieu of their in-person workshops and festivals. And on December 12th, a colleague of mine who is a continual player and scholar named Dylan Sauerwald uh, is doing a class on Handel's early operas. And that may sound super boring to some of you, but I promise you, if you're interested in, in Baroque opera, he is so charming and so smart and so passionate about it. Check out AmherstEarlyMusic.org and look for Dylan Sauerwald's class on December 12th. Matt Cummings. Uh, I'm not trying to do PR for the Metropolitan Opera these days, but they are on December 6th, this coming Sunday, going to be having as their live stream a production of Tosca starring my bae above all bays, Queen Charlie Barrett. <laughs> I, I don't yes. know if they're gonna, if they've, like, if they've worked a cape into that staging, if they didn't, <laughs> that was a really big missed opportunity. Uh, it also stars some tenor that you probably might not have heard of called Luciano Pavarotti. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to be checking that out with my, my popcorn and my cape, my watching cape. Yes. <laughs> Weston Williams, you've talked an awful lot this evening. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, we have learned over the course of the last couple of hours, uh, we are four years late to the party, but the majority of the cast of Opera Box Score is elbow deep in the crown right now. So OBS listeners, if you're watching the crown, no matter if you're at the beginning where I am or season four, like somebody else's, tweet at us. Let's talk about the crown. And I have already put on my watch list everything that Josh O'Connor has ever done. So That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score, podcast version of our show available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Let us know what's on your mind. OperaBoxScore at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you finish those leftovers. 
We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with conductor Carrie Lynn Wilson. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more cream now available in cherry flavor. Join us. <laughs>